Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. Exciting morning so far, wouldn't you say? Celebrating baptism, we're going to be hearing from the missions team. Uh, It's a big Sunday. And we're also halfway through our series. We're on to week six of ten. That's halfway, right? We've finished five. We have five yet to go. Yeah, that's halfway. Uh, We've been talking about what it means to belong, to believe, and to become. Everybody needs a place to belong, a truth to believe, like Alexis professed publicly today, and the courage to become. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we've arrived at John chapter 7 this morning, if you want to turn to John chapter 7. We looked at Nicodemus, we talked about the woman at the well, we talked about the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. They were each trying to find this sense of belonging in their life, and they seemed to be coming up short. Nicodemus tried to earn it through religious performance, but yet he had to come to Jesus and say, how can these things be? The woman at the well, she searched well after well after well for belonging, but every time that bucket came up dry and she was empty until she had an encounter with Jesus. The lame man by the pool, he had bought into this lie that he had no one. There was no one to help him in his time of need, but yet Jesus is standing right in front of him. Do you want to be healed? An encounter with Jesus changes everything. And it's the deepest sense of belonging that our soul desires is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But how do you get to that point? We started talking about a truth to believe. We've got to found our faith in truth. So what is that truth that we're going to believe? Everybody is believing something for their life. Whether they call themselves a person of faith or not, everybody has faith in a baseline truth that they're living their life by. And last week in John chapter six, we looked at the miracle where Jesus fed thousands with the little boy's lunch. We talked about how the world is starving for a truth to believe. You can see it everywhere. People are searching for something that they can set as the bedrock foundation for their life, but they seem to be coming up short. We talked about all these, these modern mantras in society where people live their life according to those truths, but they erode away their, their false truths, their half-truths, their twisted truths. Jesus said, the people are hungry. The disciples said, send them into the villages. Let them fend for themselves. Let them find something to fill the craving. Jesus said, no, no, no. You feed them. Jesus talked about how he is the living bread come down from heaven. If you eat, you will hunger no more. If you drink, You will thirst no more. And then Jesus gives this really edgy picture of Passover and how he was going to have a new covenant in his blood and it would then be known as communion, the Lord's table, where the bread symbolizes his broken body and the blood symbolizes, the juice symbolizes his blood shed for us as the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. I love that second song we sang. This I Believe, the Creed by Hillsong. We're declaring these are the truths that we believe that we will live our life by. I think that's beautiful and it it sets up this morning's passage so nicely. Everyone needs a truth to believe. And it seems like more so now than ever before, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like 
There is no objective absolute truth that society seems to hold on to these days. God's moral laws seem like they're out the window. There are so many tasty, twisted truths that people are building their life on. But another problem of society's modern approach to truth, as I see it, is this need to scientifically weigh the evidence. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and, and they respond with, well, you know, I'm, I'm a scientifically minded person. I have to see all of the data. I have to weigh it out, look at the stats and figures. I have to see if the evidence adds up. Have you had a conversation like that? And when it comes to faith, I just can't seem to make the evidence add up. I, I have to see it for myself. I find all of this ironic, don't you? I mean, the modern apologetic books that are coming out defending the truths of scripture with an observable evidence academic approach. There seems to be so much of that these days and those are good. Uh, you've got so many sermons geared towards the critic, the person who's questioning, who can't seem to make the evidence add up. You've got scientifically minded people who need to observe all of the outcomes and the experimentations. But this seems just so ironic, doesn't it? Based on what we talked about last week, our culture is becoming increasingly subjective about truth. You can look at the evidence straight in the face all day long, but it's all about how I feel. It's not about the objective evidence, it's about how the evidence makes me feel. That seems to be society's bent on truth. Does, does our culture actually submit to the realities of scientific findings these days? Could you present somebody with enough facts and figures on how the modern approach to so many areas of our life is not leading you down a good, healthy path scientifically, would it actually change their mind? Or would they continue to go with what feels good? Does society actually want to think critically about the big questions in life these days? Are people still interested in reasoning through well-crafted arguments on the validity of faith? Or is that a thing of the past? Or is that how we approach faith? Steve asked the question earlier on, is seeing believing? If they see it, will they believe it? And that's what we're going to talk about in John chapter 7. First, let me point out some helpful context. John chapter 7, start in verse 1 before we dig into the meat here. John chapter 7 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So here's some context. Jesus is in Galilee. Guess what? It's his hometown. He's back in his hometown. Matthew chapter 13 sheds more light, and we're going to look there in a second. He's not in Judea because the Jews wanted him dead. Why did the Jews want him dead? Any guesses? He was claiming to be God. And if you're a religious Jew and you know the law and somebody is blaspheming, meaning they themselves are claiming equality with God as Jesus is doing, because Jesus is God, that would probably rub you the wrong way because the law says that person should die. The Jews are seeking to kill Jesus. There's no question. Jesus is claiming to be God. You can't get around it. 
Why else would the Jews want to kill him? He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. Jesus is claiming to be God, and this is frustrating the Jews. There, there are so many different religions out there in the world today, many of which appreciate the Bible, but would not agree with Jesus' claim to divinity. You can stand in the driveway and you can chat with them for hours. Yeah, Jesus is a good man. We really appreciate him. He's a great prophet. He had a lot of good life lessons. Uh, he was the epitome of love and mercy and grace and did so many good things. But if you really push them to say yes, but is Jesus God? Was he born of the virgin? Did he live a sinless life? Did he die on the cross and rise again in his own strength? Is he seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father? Is Jesus God? And they will argue with you until they're blue in the face. No. But we believe the Bible. How can you believe the Bible, but yet not agree with Jesus' claims to be God? What do the miracles mean? What do the I am statements mean that we're counting? What do the claims to be the son of God mean? You cannot take Jesus as just a good man or a good prophet or a good moral teacher because if that's your understanding of Jesus, then you have to also say, yeah, but he was crazy. Because if he is just a man, but claiming to be God, have you met many people who claim to be God? Probably not, right? You cannot say Jesus is just a good man. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus is God. You cannot build your understanding of the truth on the word of God and overlook the fact that he is God. He claims to be God. He works the miracles of God. He fulfills the prophecies from God, hundreds of prophecies. Why else would the Jews be seeking to kill him? If he's just a good man, then there's no threat. You don't need to kill him. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So here's another feast. How many feasts are we counting through the book of John? Seven. Seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. God created the world and rested on the seventh day, seven days in the week. If you look at Leviticus chapter 23, it outlines seven Jewish feasts that the Hebrew people were to observe after they exited Egypt and were traveling through the wilderness. Leviticus chapter 23, if you want to look at that later today. You can read about how God instituted all seven of them for the Hebrew people as they traveled through the wilderness. But the Feast of Booths is a seven-day feast that happened at the end of the harvest season. It's called the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles, or tents, because the people were instructed to build a tent and live in it for the week. Doesn't that sound like a good celebration? It's the fall season, let's set up our tent, we'll live in it for a week. We'll enjoy all the, all the fruits of the season, the harvest. And the picture that was being remembered or commemorated is the fact that as the Hebrew people traveled through the wilderness, they lived in tents so that they could pick them up the next morning, travel to the next spot, following God in the cloud and in the fire by night. And they would set up their tent at the next spot. There's the tent of meeting. There's the tabernacle. They carried these things through the wilderness, and this Feast of Booths is to remember God's faithfulness as the people traveled through the wilderness, and the harvest season, and the manna, and the water from the rock, and the quail. But similarly, we're, we're all pilgrims just passing through. You know that, right? This isn't our forever home. We were made for more. Now, there's a truth to belief to live your life by. 
The Apostle Paul says this outward body that's failing is just a tent. It's just a tabernacle. It's just a a booth. And at the end of our time, we will give up this body and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this tent that is failing, we're going to put it off in light of our new glorified bodies that we're going to have for all of eternity. And this body that's perishing and failing will remain here. This is just a tent because we're just passing through the wilderness on our way to the promised land, our forever home. That's the Feast of Booths. Now, we're going to take some time to ponder these next few verses because this this is really what I feel is the crux of the matter in our sermon time this morning. Verses 3 to 5. It may even take many of us by surprise, cause us to think. So Jesus is in his hometown. There's the Feast of Booths about to take place. John chapter 7 and verse 3. So his brothers said to him, not his disciples, his brothers. Do you know Jesus had siblings? He had younger brothers and sisters. According to Matthew 13, he had four brothers and sisters. You ever stop to think about that? Jesus is the oldest, virgin birth, as Joseph and Mary were engaged to be wed. He's the oldest, but then there are younger siblings in the family. What would it be like growing up with Jesus? We're going to talk about that. We're going to hang out there. So his brothers said to him, verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea, Feast of Booths, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, then show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Any shock, any surprise, any awe, wonder? Okay, let's hang out here for a bit. These are his actual brothers. And they didn't believe. How is that possible? Now, we know that later on in the story, some of them certainly did believe. His, I think it's the next brother, James, was a leader in the Jerusalem church, as we can see through the book of Acts. So certainly he came to faith at some point, but at this point in the story... They didn't yet believe. How does that work? Um, In fact, they're being sarcastic with Jesus. They say, yeah, you go on, get out of here, go show the world your miracles. If you really are the Messiah, then stop hiding. Prove it. Display it. Put yourself out there if, if you really believe these things. Get out there and display your power to the world. Don't you want the world to see and believe? So go on, show yourself to the world so that they can believe. It blows me away. I I spent a lot of time this week thinking about the implications of this. Like his own siblings didn't believe him. You think about growing up with Jesus. Jesus started his earthly ministry at 30 years old. He's crucified at 33. We're in the in-between period here. Maybe he's a, a year or two into his earthly ministry. They watched him for potentially three decades, his childhood years, his teenage years, his young adult years, his years working carpentry with his father, the time at the synagogue, the time at home during family Bible reading. They sat on the couch next to Jesus. 
day after day after day after day, but yet they don't yet believe him. How is that? You know, you might say familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt. Like Jesus says in Matthew 13, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Aren't his brothers and his sisters among us? Doesn't he just live down the road? Didn't he go to school with my kid? Isn't that the guy that I see walking to and from? It just becomes so familiar and we get so used to it. Is that how you feel today? Like, I, listen, I went to Sunday school. I saw all the flannel graphs. I know that they didn't have characters for every Bible character and they kept using the same woman for all the women throughout the Bible because every time they put her up, her head wouldn't stick and it would flop down. I figured that out. I sat through Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. After, I know all the songs. I know the words. I know when to stand. I know when to sit. And it just becomes so familiar. And familiarity breeds contempt. And we're presented Sunday after Sunday, after family devotion, after whatever it is in your life of discipleship. You're presented with that truth. You see it face to face. But yet it's so familiar, it's common. Like you ever have somebody walk into your house and point out cobwebs? <laughs> or like point out a crack on the scene? Or point out like, hey, what happened here? And, and your answer is like, I totally didn't see that. Don't you live here? Don't you look at this ceiling every time you sit down on the couch, like twice a day? You didn't see it? Well, familiarity breeds contempt. Have we become so familiar with Jesus as some sort of intellectual concept that it's lost its power? Is that the case for you? I wonder if his parents told the other siblings the stories. Do you think Joseph and Mary sat down the kids, James, Joseph, Simeon, Judas, the sisters. Now, let us tell you how it happened. The angels showed up. Zachariah, Elizabeth, the angels showed up to Mary. Mary's pregnant. She doesn't know what to do. Elizabeth, Joseph sees the angel. They travel to Bethlehem. The wise men, the shepherds, Simeon, Anna. We forgot him in the temple. Here's what the priest had to say. And this is your brother. Did you realize that? Do you think they ever had that conversation? Google that? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Here's the part that rocked me this week. So I'm a preacher, right? It's what I feel called to do. It's what I feel gifted to do. It, could I, in the next 20 years, or however long God allows me, preach a sermon like so powerfully captivating? Like just, if I just worked on it for months and just wrote, like the perfect words and the right scriptures and made connections in the word of God that people had never seen before. Could I write a sermon that would rival living with Jesus for three decades? Could I write a sermon that would formulate faith in you more so than growing up with Jesus formulated faith in his siblings. I'm being sarcastic, right? Why did they not believe? That scares me. 
in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our conversations with our children, our coworkers, and our neighbors, we put so much weight into saying the right thing, sharing the right scripture at the right time with the is that what it's about? If, if we just present them with the right truth at the right time, if we just bring their eyes to the truth, the right place in the right time, is that enough for faith? Is seeing believing? Can I show you something right now that would cause you to believe in and of itself? I hope you see the point that I'm trying to make. I wonder if the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets would say the same about you and I today. We had to look forward through the eyes of faith for the day when the Messiah would come. And we never got to see it with our own eyes. We didn't know his name would be Jesus. We didn't know it would be Mary and Joseph. We, we didn't get to see the miracles that were performed. We didn't get to see him die on the cross and rise again. We didn't get to see any of that. We just looked ahead through the eyes of faith at the coming Messiah and that hope and expectation and faith. But now you, you get to look back. And you've got this written document, endless copies, digital copies, in any language you want. And you can read about all the things that did take place and you can see all this historical evidence and you can see the lives changed and you can see all the prophecies fulfilled. You can look back and read about it. Why don't you believe? Do you think the prophets and the patriarchs would feel like, do you think they're going to say that to us when we arrive in heaven? Is seeing believing? Consider Jesus' brothers and what they have to say in verse, is it verse 4? Look at their mindset. See the works, known openly. Show yourself to the world. Their thought is seeing is believing. Get out there and prove it. Put it on display. Show it. Reveal it. Maybe they hadn't been eyewitnesses to see the miracles that Jesus had performed. Maybe they weren't at that wedding at Cana of Galilee. Maybe they weren't up on the mountaintop when he turned all the bread and fish to feed thousands. Maybe they're just hearing the reports and they're thinking, really? You know, it's my brother, right? You know I grew up with him, right? You know we were potty trained together, right? I don't know, I'm speculating. He didn't do those miracles when we were kids. There were times when mom and dad were desperately in need of food. Why didn't he make bread and fish for our family? So here's a question for you. What does seeing have to do with believing? If Jesus' brothers have had front row seats for the last three decades and yet they don't believe at this point, is seeing actually believing? If you see it, will you believe it? We live in a culture where seeing is not believing. There doesn't seem to be any objective truth to observe in our culture today. We see the stats on mental health, abuse, addiction, suicide. They're skyrocketing. They're getting worse year over year over year. We're really in a pickle. They're higher than ever before. We see the trends. We see the timelines connected to so many arguments of our modern subjective approach. If it feels good, do it. Love is love. How can this be wrong when it feels so right? You can be whoever you want to be. But the evidence is clear. The data doesn't lie. Come at it from a scientific approach. How do people see the numbers, yet refuse to believe 
that God's moral law needs to be the bedrock foundation of society. How can people believe that we're on the right path and we've made so much progress in our modern, woke, enlightened society? It's because seeing is not necessarily believing. In fact, believing is more than seeing. The Bible says faith goes beyond sight. Just because you're presented with a fact doesn't mean that you're willing to submit yourself to it. Let's look at verse 6. We've got to keep moving on. John 7 and verse 6. Jesus said to them, to his own brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. His siblings say, show yourself to the world. Jesus says, it's not my time yet. So he stays in Galilee a little longer. He's not interested in making a public scene. He knows the Jews want to get him. But Jesus says something particularly interesting in our discussion here. The world hates him. Why does the world hate him? Do you see what it says? Verse 7. Because he testifies about it, that its works are evil. You know what truth we have the hardest time seeing and the hardest time believing? Is the hard truth about ourselves. The hard truth that we don't want to see that we don't want people to put in front of our face. It's the hard truth of our sin. It's the hard truth of our evil hearts before a holy God. It's the hard truth that God created us, therefore we are subject to him and accountable to him, and because of our poor choices in breaking his law and the sin and the evil within our heart, we are separated from God, and the only way to God is through his son Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to face that hard truth first, that there is evil in our hearts that must be dealt with. Otherwise, we don't need a savior. That's what we talked about last week. If we don't have a problem, if we have all the answers, we don't need a savior. But the truth is, the hard truth, each one of us has evil in our hearts. And only Jesus can deal with that evil. Look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. You can just picture what that looks like, right? While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Are we scared to speak the truth today? So Jesus heads to the feast a little later and the Jews are looking for him. Where is he? Isn't it interesting all the differing opinions on who Jesus is? Yeah, he's a good man. Mm, isn't he leading people astray? There's all these differing opinions. Is he just a good man? Isn't, isn't that the hometown boy, the carpenter's son? Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is likely a few days later. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it 
that this man has learning when he has never studied. Surely truth is something you need a degree to wrap your head around, right? You're not woke or enlightened unless you go get your college or university degree and have a professor tell you what truth to believe for your life, right? They're just marveling at Jesus. How does this guy have learning and understanding? How does this guy have truth when he has never studied? Was he secretly meeting with the scribes and Pharisees? Were they training him in the law and we just didn't know about it? And that's where these words of authority and power are coming from? I don't think so. Where did he get this teaching from? He hasn't spent any time studying. Where does truth come from? Where does believing start? Does it start in a classroom, in a university? Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? I love how Jesus calls them right out on this whole seeing and believing topic. You've seen the law, right? You know the law. Yeah, we memorized it when we were 12 years old as per Jewish custom. Okay, then why don't you follow it? If you see it, why don't you believe it, apply it, live it out? Jesus says, my teaching is not my own, but this is God's law come down from heaven. Just as those 10 commandments were delivered to Moses from heaven on the top of the mount. And then he smashed them. The crowd says, who's trying to kill you? Jesus references one of his miracles on the Sabbath. I'm continuing on the passage here. How the Jews are criticizing him based on their view of the law, their understanding, their education, from what they can see, they're judging Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is basically saying seeing is not necessarily believing. You're judging what you see, but it's wrong judgment. Doesn't this tie in with the whole Feast of Booths? Everybody's staying in a tent right now, right? And the tent, as Paul uses it, is a picture of our outward appearance, this body that's perishing and failing. And I'm getting older and my metabolism is slowing down. My joints hurt more and I tend to get sick more often. I don't know what that's all about, but my outer shell is perishing. And the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And the prophet Samuel shows up at Jesse's home and says, line up your sons. God is going to show us who the king of Israel should be. Surely the Lord's anointed is before us, this tall, dark, and handsome oldest brother. But no, it's the little freckle-faced kid out in the field. Joseph tells his brothers his dreams. You're all going to bow before me. I don't know what this means, but I had this dream and I believe it's from God and here it is and they make fun of him and throw him in a well and fake his death and put blood on the coat of many colors and sell him into slavery. And then comes this moment where Joseph is second in command and shows mercy to his brothers. Judging the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart of man. Jesus says, don't judge appearances. Judge with right judgment. This is not my truth. This comes down from heaven 
from the Father, and it's glorifying to him. Look at verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from. I think that's a reference to him being the hometown boy. Look, I was just in Galilee. You know that my father's the carpenter. You know my mother Mary. You know my, my siblings. You, you know me, but then look what he says. Verse 28. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jump to verse 33. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Do you see how Jesus is building the, the case for faith? You can't see this. You can't reason it out in your own mind. Sure, you know me. I'm the guy you're trying to arrest. I'm the carpenter's son from Galilee. But here's what you don't know. I'm coming to show the world the Father. Sometimes we get our, uh, our language a little mixed up and we talk about this relationship with Jesus. But the reality of the situation is Jesus came to give us a relationship with the Father. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the invitation to the Father. Jesus came to show us the Father. We can't see the Father save the work of the Holy Spirit through creation, through conscience, and the gift of his Son. Jesus came to show us the Father. Not through our physical eyes, through the eyes of faith, through the heart. We're going to get there. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, so a whole week of Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you think he's going back to John chapter four, the woman at the well, the living water, drink of this water, you'll never thirst again? I think he is. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit. When you come to trust Christ as your Savior and you make the personal decision to place your faith and trust in him and to make him the Lord of your life because he died for your sins and rose again to give you new life, a relationship with the Father, a home in heaven, he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit, your seal until the day of redemption. And that Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit within us, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive within us. This is the factor we haven't yet discussed in this chapter. The Holy Spirit has not yet been given. The day of Pentecost has not yet been given. Jesus has not yet said, it's better that I leave so that the comforter can come. I'm sending the comforter in my name. That has not yet happened. Jesus is talking about when the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe as our comforter, our guide, our paraclete. The Holy Spirit is the factor in this whole seeing and believing thing that is of utmost importance. This is the faith 
agent. The Holy Spirit gives faith. The gift of faith builds faith. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit calls us in. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus' siblings hadn't yet responded to him. This doesn't happen because our eyes process information into our brains. It doesn't happen as we build our academic knowledge in the mind in a college classroom. It happens as God's spirit tunes our heart to his and we respond to the truth in submissive faith. It's a free will choice that you must make in your own heart. The Holy Spirit's going to convict you. Just as Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that its hearts are evil. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you of that sin and the need for a savior. And then he's going to call you and invite you like that paraclete guides the ship to safe harbor. And then you need to respond in personal faith. Let's close out the chapter. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, now I want you to see this. There's different responses, which blows me away. When they heard these words, what words? The words of Jesus, the same words. They're all hearing the same words, seeing the same Jesus. They're getting the same information. They're seeing the same thing when they heard these words. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Apparently they didn't know the story. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him in? He was right there. Why didn't you arrest him? Look at verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Doesn't that sound like Peter's words in the last chapter? You have the words of life. To whom are we going to go? No one ever spoke like this man. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees ever believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they're uneducated. How could they know? Is accursed. Verse 50. Nicodemus. There's a name we know, right? John chapter 3. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I love how Nicodemus makes his way back into the story. Let's give Jesus a hearing. Let's let him present all the data and we'll see what it's all about. Let's, let's give this guy a chance. Let's give him a hearing. God is orchestrating his plan through all of this. But notice the differing opinion. How could the crowd who heard the same teaching from the same guy on the same day with the same circumstances walk away with differing opinions? 
If I could just craft that perfect message that could tie in with, with watching Jesus for 30 years grow, if I could just present this incredible and you could see it, wouldn't you all walk away believing? Isn't that how faith works? But here we see the crowds presented with the same information straight from Jesus' lips in the same place at the same time, and they walk away with differing opinions. How is that? How is it that some believed it was Jesus, the Christ? How is it that some thought, yeah, he's, he's a prophet? How is it that some thought, no, he's leading people astray and he should be arrested? How is it that some people thought, man, he's got words that I've never heard anybody speak like that before? How do they walk away with all these differing opinions? It's because faith is a personal choice. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you. Maybe you sense the Holy Spirit calling you right now. But when it comes down to it, faith is your personal decision. What's the truth that you are going to build your life on? When you stand before God, you're not going to be able to say, eh, you didn't do it for me, God. You didn't, you didn't make the faith happen in my heart. You know, through that set of experiences or life, it's, I'm just a victim of it. No, 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 no. You're going to be judged on, on whether or not you responded by faith to God's invitation of love. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. Are you going to respond in personal faith like Alexis did and professed it through her baptism? I'm going to invite Andy up at this point and we're going to conclude our service with some time in prayer. There are going to be people who would love to pray with you after the service right up here. We're going to have shared lunch. The Honduras team is going to be sharing at one o'clock. There's no need to rush away. This, this is an opportunity to respond right here. Maybe this is your day of salvation. Maybe the, the truth that you've been living your life by is proving to be hollow and a shaky foundation that's not holding up in times of trouble. And you need a better truth to build your life on. You need the truth to build your life on today. I would encourage you, now the time, now's the time to respond. Today's the day of salvation. Maybe the Holy Spirit has brought you to this place where you would call out to God for your salvation today. If you're feeling that subtle prompt, then I would encourage you to follow that. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you and calling you, if, if you hear God's voice nearer to you than ever before, then you need to make a personal decision today. Could we all stand together as we just spend some time in prayerful reflection, meditating on these scriptures from John chapter 7? We're going to have the scriptures on screen, and it's not my intention to preach through them all over again. I just want to lead us in a prayerful response to the truth of God's word today. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us God's miracle-working power. Forgive us, Jesus, for the time that we spent in disbelief. Forgive us for settling for familiarity instead of worship. Please, God, would you help us to face the hard truths 
God, would you show us the sin in our own hearts? God, thank you that faith is not just for the college graduate. Thank you, God, that truth ultimately comes from you. All truth is your truth. I'm sorry, God, for having a mind that can be contrary to yours. I'm sorry, God, for refusing to submit to your will and your calling over my life. Please, Jesus, would you help me to see with the eyes of faith? Please, Jesus, give me right judgment. Thank you, Jesus. You are the living water. Jesus, you quench my thirst for truth. Thank you, Jesus. Your truth is ultimate. Jesus, you are the truth to believe. God, I thank you for my church family now, for those who are here in person, those participating online, those who are maybe turn, tune in later in the week or a month or a year down the road. God, we thank you that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and that it can divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And God, we pray that your word would do the work that it's been sent out to accomplish today. We claim your promise that it would not return void. God, we pray for those whose spirit is being stirred by your spirit, that they would respond in faith and that they would make the personal decision to make you, Jesus, Lord of their lives, to have a relationship with the Father by the power of the Spirit, and to know a truth that they can believe for their life and for their eternal life in the next. God, we thank you so much for what you've done in our midst. Thank you for the lunch that we're going to enjoy. Thank you for the fellowship that we will have. Thank you for the times of prayer that are going to happen after the service. Thank you for the share time for the Honduras team, we pray. God, we pray that what you did on that trip and in the lives of the team and the kids at the children's home, God, that that, that would pass on to us and would inspire our faith and our passion and our zeal and Holy Spirit, would you call us to a sense of revival that we're seeing around North America this week? God, call us to it. Lead us in it. We want to follow your voice and submit to your will today. Thank you, Jesus. Nobody speaks like you do. In Jesus' name.